Hey, everybody. Good morning. Now, uh, Victor Warren invited me, and Pastor Dan took a risk, I think, to have me here. So if you don't like it, blame Victor. If you like it, pat Pastor Dan on the back. But uh, Victor doesn't like to finish baseball games, I learned last night. Went to the White Sox game. We left in the seventh inning. Who won the game? White Sox won? Okay, good. Then we feel better. It is great to be here in Chicago. Actually, my mom and dad were from Chicago originally, so uh, I've not been able to spend enough time here, though, so it's been great to have a few hours to be in Chicago and be with you. So thank you for having me today. Pastor Dan, thank you so much for the privilege of speaking at Christ Church. And you know, the first impression, you know how when you meet somebody, they say, okay, you can kind of size up everything in seven, eight seconds. You guys have a very loving and warm a community of believers, and that's something to cherish and to nurture. I felt it right when I stepped in the door, just, uh, just all the embrace, so thank you. Hey, uh, one of the things, focus on the family. You know, when I took over from Dr. Dobson, ah, can you imagine that? And, and actually, the interim president was Don Hodell, who was President Reagan's Secretary of Energy and Interior. And Don and I are walking down the hall, and Don says to me, hey, Dr. Dobson, the board, and I think you're the guy that should take it over. I started laughing. I Seriously, I started laughing. You've got to be kidding. Now, Pastor Dan went to Yale. I'm sure you all know that. What he doesn't know is we were his rival school. I graduated from Cal State San Bernardino. <laughs> did, did you know that, Pastor Dan? I mean, we, we're arch rivals. Did you know that? <laughs> Uh, he's intimidated, I'm sure. Uh, but in that context, the one thing for me, I was thinking, Lord, what in the world? I laid up that entire night before the, uh, the service, the installation service for me. And my wife, Jean, slept soundly right next to me. I thought that was kind of rude. Uh, but I just thought, I, Lord, I am not good enough. I am not the right guy. I'm coming from brokenness. And I want to prove, before we get started, I have a little clip, an audio clip, of how uh, imperfect the daily household is. Now, my boys are with the youth group over there. They're probably having a great time in cow. Trent and Troy, don't ask me why we did that, because every time I go to Troy, hint, get over here. I don't know why we named them so close together, but what's... Amazing to me is I've not found a perfect family, right? We live as sinners saved by grace. There's always stuff going on in a family, and I want to talk a bit about that today. But before I do, this audio clip, I got to set it up. So we went out to Hobby Lobby, yay, and for $14.99, we bought this science experiment where you attach these test tubes to, and you submerge, submerge the test tubes underwater, and you end up with hydrogen gas. And you light it for your two boys, kaboom! And they go, wow, you are the coolest dad ever. The problem is I left this experiment out on the countertop the next night when Jean and I went to the Christian Jewish dialogue dinner and her cell phone on the tables, so something's wrong with the 15-year-old babysitter. And this is the phone message that Troy at the time was probably five or six. This is the message that he left for us. Hi, Mommy. Trenton actually was dumb enough to um, 
get the battery. I put my tongue on in the mini junk cables and actually plug it in the DVD player and it caused smoke. But don't worry, it did not start a fire. This is Troy, and, my, and by the way, Trent did it, okay? Okay. Have I been specific enough? Okay, bye. Oh, there's more. Oh, sorry. There's more. Don't go easy on <laughs> Okay, now. Okay, so whenever I'm with my agnostic friends, I'm always saying, do you believe in the story of Cain and Abel? No, it's a fable. It's a myth. I said, oh, let me play this for you. That's Cain and Abel right there. They just didn't kill each other. But uh, it's evidence that uh, there are no perfect families. So... Every year at Focus on the Family, we have about 230,000 visitors that come through. I welcome you to come and visit the campus. The, uh, we have a prayer area where adults and children can scribble a prayer request, and we pray over these every week, and we get a lot during the summer. So we had this little boy scribble a note out, and he said, please pray for my brother. He wets the bed. Please pray for me. I share a bed with my brother. <laughs> Now, is that great or what? That's probably one of the most honest prayers we've received in that spot. But uh, it's so much fun. And I do want to talk about family for the few minutes that I have with you. And, and really, uh, you know, walking the halls of Washington, meeting with presidents and all that, it sounds like a lot of fun. It can be really frustrating. And what I'm coming to the conclusion of that I'm sure most of you have already arrived, you know what? It's a changed heart that's going to change the nation. It's a changed family. We have to be present in that in that arena of the public square. But I I also, I want to rely more on the Lord changing a heart and being engaged in community like Christ Church is here in this community. That's how the job's going to get done. You know, when you look at the statistics, it's abysmal. Fatherlessness is really, in my opinion, one of the core problems that we're facing in this country. Get this, 85% of men in prison did not have a dad in the home. 85%. Think of this silver bullet uh, opportunity that we have in the Christian community. If we can encourage dads to be engaged with their families and to stick with their marriages. Um, 71% of teen suicides, that teenager did not have a dad in the home. Is that amazing? Uh, almost 75% of teens that are in trouble, at-risk behavior, sex and drugs and other things, do not have a father in the home. So when you start looking at the culture and the impact of fatherlessness in the culture, I think that's it. And it's, it's interesting to me because that's what I lived. I had three dads in my life. And uh, in my first book, Coming, or Finding Home, that's the story I tell. And I'll tell it just briefly here. And the reason I tell it is to encourage you and to encourage all kids, really, that have difficult home life. Um, when I was 15, I accepted Christ. I had a wonderful football coach, and he, he took me to a fellowship of Christian athletes camp, and um, the man just said the right thing, and I went down and accepted Christ. I got back, and a teammate of mine on the football team, his dad was so excited that I had accepted Christ, he gave me a Bible and wrote in it John 10.10. First scripture anybody had ever given me, John 10.10. And if you don't know the scripture well, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I'm flipping through. There's a lot, lot of Johns in the Bible. You know, and so I found John ten ten, and I thought, huh, the the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come that you might have life and life to the full. 
That is an awesome statement, and I think it's the core pitch battle that we have in the culture today. The thief, the enemy of our heart, is coming to steal, kill, and destroy us. And guess what? It looks like he's succeeding in the family, doesn't it? When you look at what's going on. Um, at Focus on the Family, as Pastor Dan said, we get lots of mail and e- email and phone calls every day, 2,400 calls a day from families that are struggling. Uh, so often what we're finding in that are the things that the world struggles with. I don't like my spouse anymore. I'm just making the decision it's over and we're done. Oh yeah, we're Christians, but I don't really love them anymore. Wow. Guess what? That's happening thousands of times a week in the church today. And we've got to do a great job of pulling together and saying, okay, we're going to fight through this. There was a study at University of Chicago. They had two groups. Uh, All of them were headed toward divorce, but one group uh, held back. They asked them to hold back and fight through their differences. The other group, they let them go and they got divorced. At the end of five years, they went back and did research on those two groups. The group that fought through their difficulty, 85% of them were happier than five years before when they were contemplating divorce. Those that divorced, ironically, 85% of them were less happy. Isn't that something? But we're so me-focused today, we're losing the ability to stick through difficulty, aren't we? Our resiliency has really gone down. And I think that's the key for us. So where do we get resiliency? Well, here's the irony, I think. Scripture's pretty clear in Psalms where it says, I'm close to the brokenhearted and I save those crushed in spirit. I love that. God, he kind of comes alongside the heart that's humble or has been humbled, the one that's been broken. So when you look at adversity in your life and you think, God, why would you do this to me? I think the answer is, so you'll come closer to me, right? So for me, I'm a five-year-old boy. And uh, I've got two older brothers and two older sisters. I was the oops baby. Anybody the oops baby in here? You get introduced at the party. Oh, this is is our accident. It's it's great for your self-esteem as a five-year-old. I was an accident? And... uh, and, but I was six years younger than my closest sibling. They were all born one year apart, four straight years. Then six years later, little Jimmy comes along. And my mom was 42 when she had me in 1961. And uh, so there, we were in a, what I would call now a typical dysfunctional family. My dad was an alcoholic. My mom got fed up with it. She left my dad one night after he came home drunk. She was not there, but he threatened to kill her, had a hammer in his hand, was pounding the walls, putting holes in the walls. It was the end of our family that night, and that's when uh, it was all over for us. And my mom then went on the move, five kids, working two or three jobs, never went on welfare. We just all pitched in, and we got it done. But that's what that first father figure was like for me, um, the alcoholic dad. And then my mom remarried three years later to a guy named Hank. I nicknamed him Hank the Tank. He was an ex-military drill sergeant. Great guy for a stepdad. We actually had white glove tests every Saturday. I'm not kidding. He would go through the house with a white glove, and it was military barracks time. And uh, it was awful. He made me hang up my jacket 500 times when I was nine years old. I was so, you know, naive, I actually did it. And he had me yelled out the number, one, two, And I got to 500. Okay, that's enough. If you walk into my closet today, my side is all color-coordinated by type, you know, shirt, pant, suit. And my wife's side, oh my goodness, 
And uh, Gene gives me permission to say that, by the way. But uh, it, it's just, it's the impact of Hank the Tank on my life. Well, about a year and a half into this, I'm still nine years old, and uh, my mom died of cancer. And we got home from the funeral, and Hank had sold all of our furniture, and he walked out of the, the master bedroom with two suitcases, and he came up to us. We were all in the, in the living room in that little house in Long Beach, California, and he came up to us, and he said, I can't take the pressure. I'm leaving. And I remember as a nine-year-old boy going, uh, I can't take it either. Where do I go? Well, the next day I found out. I went to foster care. And uh, my mom accepted Christ the day before she died. Isn't this amazing? The Hope family, our neighbors, H-O-P-E, the Hope family led my mom to the Lord. And then a few days after her funeral, I'm living with the real family. I'm not making this up. Their last name was the Reels, R-E-I-L, the Reels. And they, they uh, were on disability. They lived on five acres on a little piece of land in Morongo Valley. And uh, they had trouble. Their 18-year-old son that year, Dave, married his 42-year-old cousin, Mark, uh, 42-year-old cousin Maggie. And I thought to myself as a nine-year-old, oh, is that, is that how that works? You marry your cousin and the stork brings the baby, right? Um, I'll end it there for, for time, but that was just a crazy place. And six months into living at the Reels, the social worker, the knowledgeable, wise social worker, she was probably 25, came and she looked at me, sat me down at the table. She said, we have a problem at the Reels. And I said, oh, good, an adult that gets it. And she said, well, Jimmy, Mr. Reels said you tried to kill him. Exactly. Thank you for that flinch. I saw that. And that's what I did. I went, what? And she smiled and she said, well, he said you tried to push him off a cliff. And I said in my nine-year-old voice, but we live in Morongo Valley. He was losing his mind, and uh, he was taking it out on me. And so there I was. I mean, this little boy, alcoholic dad, Hank the Tank, and Mr. Unreal. And I'm sitting there going, okay, is this what life's about? All this brokenness, is this what it's about? Now, I was fearful. I would cry myself to sleep at night, living at the reels. Then I got into football, got into sports, got into high school and love school. It gave me structure. And at 15, like I said, I went to FCA, and a man was up there saying, have men let you down in your life? Has your father let you down? Has your stepfather let you down? I thought the next thing he was going to say, has Mr. Real let you down? <laughs> it was like one of these moments, you know, where you're going, wow, this guy's talking to me. I'll introduce you to someone who will never let you down. Jesus. I was up in the front. I'll do that. And I wobbled along, but I can tell you what, that night before the installation service at Focus, so I'm wrestling, and re- Lord, I, I am ugly. I am not good enough. I can't do it. And I don't know how the Lord speaks to your heart, but out of nowhere comes this thought in my mind, it's not about you. <laughs> and I felt the Lord was saying to me, you know what, as long as you're yielded to me, wake up every day ready to serve me. It doesn't matter if it's broken pieces or good pieces. I'll use it. I'll use it. And that's what I think the Lord would say to us when it comes to being close to the brokenhearted and saving those crushed in spirit. That he wants to walk with us and to be there. To be in those families that are utterly destroyed. 
And I think we in the Christian community, if you look at the culture today, what I want to uh, suggest is that we in the Christian community have got to model this well. Not be selfish. You know, when you look at marriage, let me ask you guys, because Gene and I, we always get mail when I'm on the broadcast saying, you know, Gene and I argued last night. Oh, we'll get mail from people. Oh, you shouldn't argue if you're a Christian. So now I start calling it to save them the time and trouble of mailing. I'll say, we had a really uh, deep discussion <laughs> last night, code word for argument. Uh, but you know what? He, here's the point of that. I think in marriage, have you ever thought about, Lord, why did you do it this way? This way? Two opposites attract, right? Introvert, extrovert. My wife is a math whiz. She has a degree in biochemistry. Uh, I'm not a math whiz. And, uh, and she's the night owl. I'm the morning person. It's, it's almost like, and you've heard the expression, opposites attract, right? You've heard that. Why does the Lord do it that way? It'd be a lot easier. Same people attract it to each other, right? And, but I think I know, at least I think I know why he's doing it that way. So we can become less selfish. Wouldn't that be just like the Lord? Put two people together and you got to work on it. You got to think through it. You got to think of your spouse over yourself. Ooh, am I stepping on some toes? I hope so. And I, I'm saying that for myself too. I am, human beings are selfish. We are selfish, selfish creatures. And so when, when we, in our marriages today, are looking at the impact into the culture, we have got to do a better job. I met with a homosexual activist. A lot of people didn't want me to do it. I thought about it. I prayed about it. I called him up. And we sat down at a Starbucks. No note takers, just the two of us. And I said to him, I know you see us as your adversary. He said, we see you as our greatest adversary. I didn't expect that. And then he said, we look at your websites every day. And he smiled and he said, so much of what you do is so great for the country. Why do you pick on us? Isn't that something I had to say, Tim, I I don't mean to pick on you at all. We're trying to express a biblical perspective. He said, you guys in the Christian community haven't done so well with marriage. Why not let us give it a try? And just stop for a second. You're sitting at Starbucks with one of the nation's leading activists. What would you say when he said that? You haven't done so well in the Christian community. Why not give us a try? I remember looking at Tim and I said, Tim, you're right. We in the Christian community have not done a good job with marriage. But it doesn't nullify the truth of what God says. And I just said it, it's true we, have, we haven't lived it well. And we need to live it better. So I appreciate that admonition that you're giving me. We became pretty good friends, actually. And in fact, that organization, the Gill Foundation, we just worked together on sex trafficking laws in Colorado to strengthen them. There are ways we can communicate. doesn't mean you give up your principle. But I'm seeing in the Scripture, particularly the New Testament, New Testament we can actually uh, engage the culture in a way that woos them toward Christ. Amen? I mean, it's a good thing to do. We don't have to be long in the mouth. Some people say, well, you look saved except for your face. Your face doesn't look all that saved. We've got to, in the Christian community, smile on our, on our adversaries. You know, the book of Luke, it says, pray for those who persecute you. Love those who hate you. Is that natural? <laughs> I find that hard to do, being an ex-football player. I want to kill them. Score a touchdown. Crush them. It has to be the fact that you're filled with the Spirit 
that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, meekness, self-control, patience, those things are all in you. And when you go, Jesus said himself, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But be long in the face, be down, be fearful. No, he says, be cheerful, for I have overcome the world. And I think as we live in these days, we have got to remember the admonition of Christ to be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We don't have to worry about each battle because we know who wins in the end, right? And go into these meetings like this and go into community like here in Chicago and be the presence of God in someone's life. And I think you may change the heart of a little boy or a little girl, a little 15-year-old boy who's desperate because his family is destroyed, but he'll, he'll see something good in you and want, and want what you have. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that you are close to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit, Lord. For us to understand why things happen in our lives and how you use them, Lord, to bend goodness out of brokenness, we will never know. But thank you, Lord, for your heart for your heart of love and compassion for us, the sinners. And Lord, help us to express that in a way that opens the heart to your message, to your goodness, to your salvation. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done, dying on the cross, defeating evil, and opening up everlasting life to those who believe. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone.